You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Ambassador Joe Wilson, and I give him a long bio, but really the podcast is the bio. We're going to talk to Joe today about how he got... Uh, into the Foreign Service and the life that he led and many of the more interesting moments throughout that time. So, Joe, we really appreciate you taking the time and let's jump right in, shall we? My pleasure. So I want to ask you, because the Foreign Service is something that a lot of people may think about as a kid, you know, getting a chance to travel around the world, uh, but what brought you to the Foreign Service? I know your family has a long tradition of service, you know, usually in the military, though. What drove you to be a diplomat? Yeah, I um, am. Well, I'm a product of the 60s. And um, I went to school just right up the road here in Santa Barbara, UCSB. And anybody who graduated from UCSB around the end of the 60s or 71, as I did, was basically um, anti-establishment and, um, and anti-administration. So I went off and was a carpenter for four years, building houses in Santa Barbara and Lake Tahoe, and then moved up to Squim, Washington, in the, uh, what's called the banana belt of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And unlike Santa Barbara, um, it's not really very sunny in Washington State in the wintertime. And frankly, um, after pounding nails in the winter for a while, I got tired of the weather and thought I should th- seek, seek out a new career. Um, and I had been, been fortunate. I'd grown up um, uh, for four years in Europe. And so I had something of an international background um, and studied history at university. So in thinking about changing careers... I did what most people do when they change careers. I, I went back to school. I went back to the University of Washington. I went to see the dean because I'd been out of school for five years and thought I was sufficiently mature to, to get myself an interview with the dean of the School of Public Affairs at the University of Washington. And I said, I want to come to your school. And I want to get a foreign affairs uh, uh, degree because it seemed to me a nice alternative to carpentry would be a dip, to be a diplomat in Paris or <laughs> Vienna or Madrid. And uh, one of the first good pieces of advice I, I, I got in that regard was he said to me, if you want to come to my school, kid, you're going to have to go out and demonstrate a commitment to public service. And at that time, my knowledge of public service uh, was limited. 
I'd gotten a couple of driver's licenses. I'd registered to vote and had voted. And I'd picked up my unemployment checks when, you know, we are carpenter, you always got unemployment in the cards. And uh, so when he said I had to demonstrate commitment to public service, I thought, well, the best way I can do that is to take the foreign service exam. So I took the foreign service exam, which at that time, that year, was offered to about 25,000 people, of whom about 1,500 passed the written. Uh, I later took the oral exam uh, in Seattle. And, uh, and surprise of surprises, I passed it, and then they offered me a damn job. So they offered me a job, I couldn't say no. <laughs> and so, uh, and I always thought I was uh, gonna go back to Paris or go back to Europe and went to see the personnel officer when I showed up at the State Department, he said, where do you wanna go? And I said to him, well look, I speak, I speak pretty good French, almost perfect French. Um, I studied French history and French culture and it seems to me it's in our nation's interest to send me to Paris, Bordeaux, Nice, or Marseille. I left out Lyon and Strasbourg because I figured if I was going to be cold in the winter, it was going to be Paris or nothing. And he looked at me and he said, well, son, we have a place for you. It's a little bit to the south of France, but they speak French there, and I think you're going to like it. You'll actually even be able to use your carpentry skills there. We want to send you to be GSO in Niamey, Niger. And I said to him, I said, uh, oh, that's interesting. Let me think about it, and I'll get back to you. <laughs> and I left his office on the third floor of the State Department. Literally, right around the corner was the library. I walked in the library. I got out an atlas to figure out where the hell this Niger place was. <laughs> and then I got out a post report, which is an embassy publication, which kind of gives you life at the post. And it was all sand dunes and sand houses and camels. And it, it, uh, and it just seemed so such a National Geographic experience. And we said yes. And I never for a minute regretted it. Well, I think you kind of point out something interesting is that the, the knowledge of the average American, I mean, even, or even the educated American about Africa is number one, most people, not most people, there are people who think of Africa as kind of monolithic. Uh, it's kind of, one, kind of one big country or one big continent. But number two, I think of Niger automatically as Sub-Saharan Africa. So why are you talking about sand dunes and not about jungles? And that's just kind of the mentality that a lot of people have about or the lack of knowledge about geography of the area. And you, you not only spent time in Niger. Niger, you become famous because of Niger later on. But you spent a lot of time in Africa bouncing from place to place. What about that continent did you love so much? And what did you see as America's role in that continent? Let me just say I, I became notorious after, yeah. <laughs> I was after a while in Niger. I actually became famous the first time for confronting Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War. Um, but uh, uh, there, there's something, uh, I served in Niger, Togo, South Africa, Burundi, Congo Brazzaville, and then I came back to serve in Gabon and Sao Tome and Principe as ambassador. And then as political advisor to the European Command, Africa was in our theater. And we traveled to about 35 countries um, in the two years that I was there putting together programs. The most important of which was in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide, when we put together a program of what we call combined training, where you bring militaries from different countries together and you run training operations, which are confidence building exercises, and permit 
militaries of different countries to work together on mutual objectives, which in the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide was to put into place a cordon sanitaire to protect, protect the civilians. When there's a kinetic war going on between various factions, you want to try and get the civilians out of harm's way. And what happened was in Rwanda was the civilians were the victims of the kinetic war. It wasn't the military per se, but it was just, I walked through literally schoolhouses with burial grounds shortly after they'd all been exhumed at schools around Rwanda, where you could still smell the corpses. So it was a pretty nasty. So we put into place what was called the Flintlock Series, working with the African Union. And what we discovered in doing that was that, um, one, uh, you develop um, a, a lot of trust between the military forces that are training together. And two, because we also included the former colonial powers, we also did a fair amount of confidence building with them in that particular theater. So as an example, we couldn't work with France at the time. Uh, France uh, uh, wanted to come back into NATO, but to come back into the NATO military wing, they wanted to have uh, control of the Sixth Fleet, which, as you can imagine, the Pentagon wasn't going to give them. So we were at loggerheads with them, and the way we got around it was we worked with them on issues in Africa where we could work together, France and U.S., and not go through NATO. Uh, and we ended up being very successful. We ended up doing um, uh, evacuations in Sierra Leone, and evacuations in, um, in uh, Bangui. And we ended up deploying together to Brazzaville in the event that had Kinshasa fallen when Kabila was marching to Kinshasa, we would have been able to go in and protect the civilian population there. So it was hugely successful um, in a lot of ways. But it also got us around Africa and got us to see an awful lot. And I'm sure that's not exactly the question you asked. No, but it's a absolutely. <laughs> well, what's interesting is a lot of people, certainly within the counterterrorism community, now pay a whole lot of attention to Africa is because the failed states that popped up, Somalia being one of the most important ones, but failed states other than that, became breeding grounds for international terrorism, most famously for al-Qaeda. Yeah. You know, when, some, um, some, when uh, Osama bin Laden essentially was kicked out of the Middle East, he right. went to Somalia and other places. How early did the State Department and the National Security Establishment begin to see that as a problem? Because it certainly predates Somalia in yeah. 93, because that's kind of why we were there in the first yeah. place. When I, when I came back to the White House, and that's really, that's really what I can, that time frame I can account for, when I was in European Command, um, we were dealing with <clears throat> military and military issues and not so much with, these, with these, some of these anti-terrorism issues, counter-terrorism issues, other than as we had to respond militarily to them. Um, but when Osama was in Sudan, in Khartoum, um, the Sudanese were seeking to have some semblance of a reconciliation with the United States. We've been at loggerheads with them forever. And there was a potential opportunity there to take Saddam when he was in Khartoum. You did the same thing I just did. You mean bin Laden? Oh, bin Laden. <laughs> Saddam bin Laden. Yeah. Yeah. They were all terrorists. Um, and um, because of our, and I, I'm just projecting here, and I probably, I won't go that far. At some point, the decision was made that getting Osama bin Laden out of Khartoum wasn't worth the cost of reconciling or with the Sudanese regime. You have to question others about the sagacity of that decision. Um, I was in the White House. I just actually left the White House in 98 when, um, when the embassies in Dar es Salaam 
and um, Nairobi were hit. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that was absolutely devastating. When you sit there as senior director for Africa at the White House, you see all the intelligence that comes by every day, hundreds of thousands of bits of intelligence. And it is very, very difficult to curate it. And so you ha I had a staff, a small staff, um, who took care of each region. And I reached out to them afterwards. I didn't pick up any intelligence at the White House. I didn't get it in any briefings from the agency. I had weekly briefings from the agency. I didn't get it from any of my, my people. Um, and I didn't get it from anybody out in the field. It just didn't, it didn't bubble up. And, but it was absolutely devastating. I mean, I, I've, I've had friends who were killed. Um, and so I asked him to look into it, and he did. We ran the traps on it. We just didn't have the intel. Now, you know, once we, once we had that intel in 98, and we knew what Osama bin Laden was doing from, from before that, but that's when I think we've, we've, we began to really focus a lot on, on, on getting him. Right. And suddenly the decision was no longer contingent upon anything else other than to get him. We would have done almost anything to get him except perhaps reconcile with Sudan. <laughs> right. Well, let me ask you before we move on to talking about Iraq in 1990, let me ask you one last question specifically about your time as a diplomat in Africa. And it really involves Somalia, Rwanda, Darfur, Sudan. How frustrating was it as someone who certainly loved Africa because you'd spent as much time as you had there to watch these humanitarian crises and not be able to do anything about it or to convince the powers that be to do anything about it. I mean, it's wonderful what we did after the fact in Rwanda, but certainly there are a lot of people within the administration, within the diplomatic community that wanted to do something to stop Rwanda when it happened. And of course, the politics after Somalia really prevented that from happening. But how, from a really on the ground view, how frustrating must that have been at the time? It, it, the whole thing is extraordinarily complicated. Um, and it would take much more than just one <laughs> podcast to do it. I will say, just say about, about any of these management of international crises, what is the threshold for sending American troops to kill and to die for the objective? And where, where, where do you draw that line? Um, we didn't draw the line in the right place in Rwanda. And, and President Clinton, in the most moving speech I have ever seen, said that when he went to Kigali. And uh, I helped write it. He didn't write, say anything I wrote, but he said it <laughs> a lot much better. But when I came off the, when he came off the stage, I went back into the green room. And I was actually the only one in the green room as he came off the stage. I left as soon as he did. And he came off and he had tears in his eyes. And I had a lump in my throat. Which comes back. <laughs> And he came up to me and he said, did I do okay? And I couldn't answer. And he gave me a big bear hug and I said, yeah, man, you did great. And he was, had tears in his eyes. I had a lump in my throat, just the two of us in his tableau. And then, you know, the Secret Service come in, all the aides come in and it breaks up. But it was a, a most poignant moment with the President of the United States realizing that somewhere in the decision-making process, four years previously, Decisions had not been made, and as a consequence, we did not know what the threshold was for U.S. involvement. And that is why we set up the African Crisis Response Initiative and, um, and the whole 
combined joint forces concept that could react more quickly than the UN could. You know, the UN is a very cumbersome organization, but if you can delegate the recruiting and the operational responsibilities down to the regional organization, in this case the African Union, then they can gather African troops for humanitarian missions if those African troops have been appropriately trained and know how to work together. And that's what we tried to do in the aftermath of the Rwandan uh, tragedy, the Rwandan genocide. Now, as to, as to Sudan, when I was in Washington, in my own office, this was a huge debate, and my, in my own mind, it remains the debate. Um, the, 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 the Africa inherited its borders from the former colonial powers. Its borders are artificial. Right. And they always have been. And, but the wholesale redrawing of the borders was something that the Africans themselves looked at at the time of independence and thought, man, this is, this is way too much. <laughs> we can't do this. This is just going to wreak havoc. And so you end up with you know, Niger and Nigeria, and you've got a huge Hausa community in both countries. Uh, so how do you separate a Nigerian house and a Nigerian house? Well, the same thing was in Sudan, although it's a little easier in Sudan because you have a largely um, uh, African-Arab population in the north. So they're, 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 there's a lot of Islam, mm -hmm. a lot of Arabic, a lot of, uh, of Sudanese go and work in the Gulf. A lot of ties. And in the South, you've got a lot of animists and a lot of Christians, a lot of, a lot of, uh, of Africans. And they made the case in Ethiopia and Eritrea to split it up, which was not without controversy. Uh, in fact, Jim Baker called uh, Hank Cohen when he learned about it and said, you know, if you're going to split up countries in Africa, you at least ought to tell me about it first, don't you think? <laughs> Uh, so Sudan, there was a big push to separate southern Sudan from northern Sudan. Lots of reasons. Lots of economic reasons, uh, where is the oil, lots of ethnic reasons, uh, the, lots of, um, of, uh, of all sorts of reasons. Um, but separating it didn't solve it. Right. And that's where you have to kind of think through how do you have a divorce in a way that is peaceful? How do you do the Czech-Slovak divorce um, in a way that, that, that people kind of separate, their institutions separate, their military separate, they separate their assets, but they continue to live in peace together? <clears throat> Ethiopia and Eritrea led to a war in 98, which I talked about earlier. And in Sudan, it has been, it has been um, difficult ever since. And it remains difficult. No matter how many trips John Prendergast, who used to work for me, and George Clooney make. <laughs> well, another region of the world that you're, you've been intimately involved with that is also a victim of post-colonial problems when it comes to territories and, and borders and regions is the Middle East. And this came to a head uh, in 1990 when a border dispute between Iraq and Kuwait uh, led to Operation Desert Storm, which most of us... Uh, remember, but it's kind of quaint now compared to what we've been dealing with in the last 18 years since. We didn't lose enough Americans. Apparently, yeah. Easy. What, what brought you to Iraq? Because you, you at one point, like, why, what, that seems like a very clear departure from what you'd been doing in your career up to that point. So, um, so when I joined the Foreign Service, the Foreign Service is a caste system. Uh, you have the ambassador, and can we, can we swear here? Oh, yeah. 
Uh, so you have the ambassador, and the ambassador is at the very top of the caste system. I know I've been an ambassador. And the one thing about an ambassador, his shit doesn't stink. Now, the political counselor, who's the next highest caste, he simply believes it doesn't, even though it may. The lowest person in the caste system is the administrative section. They're the ones who provide all the logistics support. Uh, GSO, General Services Officer, and that's what I was. That was my first tour. I was the logistics guy. In Africa, they prize logistics. They prize management because it's a very difficult environment to operate in. And so uh, ambassadors prize somebody who's got management experience, and they will give them their chance. So I joined the Foreign Service as General Services Officer in Niger, where my caste was so low that whale shit on the bottom of the ocean looked like <laughs> fleecy white clouds in my eyes. But I had an advantage. Uh, I spoke French better than anybody. Uh, I, uh, I had three advantages. I spoke French better than anybody in the embassy. Um, the Nigerian economy was only about 10% monetized at the time, everybody else being subsistence farmers. And those 10% also ran, ran the economy, but they also ran the government. So a political officer would have to make an appointment to go see a junior um, foreign ministry official to talk about something. And at the same time he'd be in there talking to a junior official, the foreign minister would be in my office picking up his rent check. So my relationship with senior members of the government was much different from everybody else's. And a third advantage I had, <clears throat> being so low on the totem pole as I was, was that it was 1976, and the ambassador wanted to, wanted to have a big party to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the United States. And putting on a big party at which the president of the country is going to attend for the first time he's attended any diplomatic function is a big logistics thing. And he got to see ambassador's attention. So pretty soon, I was the ambassador's right-hand guy. I was, you know, I was his bag man. So I could speak to the chief of protocol in French better than anybody else could. I could speak to the president in French better than anybody else could. And because I ran the, the logistics operation, I had all the assets. Right. I owned the assets that I could put at the disposal of the ambassador. He had to come to me to get to the assets. So we forged a pretty good bridge. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got my start. So getting to Baghdad, so, I, so that, I moved up rather quickly in Africa. After five years, I was deputy chief of mission in, in Burundi. That's a management job. There you supervise, you also have political responsibilities, you also have representational responsibilities. And then I went to, I was, in, I was deputy chief of mission in Brazil, where we put together the Brazil protocols to the New York Accords, which led to the withdrawal of Cuban troops and South African troops in the Angolan War. It basically ended the one of the two remaining hot wars of the Cold War era, the other one being Afghanistan at the time. So um, when the ambassador to Brazzaville, or to Baghdad rather, April Glasby, was looking around for a deputy chief of mission, everybody was seeing that we were coming to the end of the Iran-Iraq war and that the chances were pretty good that in the aftermath of that, we were going to build our embassy up. Uh, from what it was during the war, which is really very small. Right. Um, that our relationship with Iraq was going to be much more robust and we would need more people, which had a big management component. And so I bid on the job. And um, uh, nobody else bid on the job <laughs> until they found out it was going to go to somebody who was an Africanist. And then they all wanted the job. <laughs> 
But what April was looking for was somebody who had management experience. She had all the Arabist experience you could possibly ask for. So she wanted a manager, so I got, <clears throat> I got that job. And um, uh, <laughs> it was um, one of those uh, simple twists of fate. Well, people, people may know her name because there's some controversy around her in the actual lead up to the invasion of Kuwait of apparently saying the United States would not stand in the way of Saddam Hussein. And this has been debated back and forth. But who better to weigh in on that than somebody who was actually there? So can you talk a little bit about what the American position was about Kuwait leading up into the invasion? Well, let me start by saying when I went out to be ambassador to uh, Gabon, Larry Eagleburger um, <laughs> said to me, he said, uh, if you're not ready to be fired, you're not ready to be ambassador. Well, I'd already demonstrated in Baghdad I was born ready to be fired. <laughs> I, you know, I'd said, hey, fire me. If you don't like what I'm doing, who are you going to get to replace me? But um, so April, uh, the controversy surrounding April uh, was very difficult uh, and very painful. I was not at the meeting, uh, the meeting with Saddam, uh, but I was there when she came back, and I was in the office when she was drafting it and we were going through everything that she had said and what was said and what had happened. And it was a very important and complicated meeting, during the middle of which President Mubarak called Saddam to, to call him off, basically. Mubarak at that time was running some shuttle diplomacy between the Kuwaitis and the Iraqis. And in that meeting, the question came up, or the way it was reported, was she told Saddam that the United States does not have a position on your border dispute with Kuwait, which was then later interpreted by some as to mean that he was giving Saddam a green light. People forget that literally since the time these borders were drawn or pretty soon thereafter, uh, it was a basic decision on the part of everybody that we were not going to embroil ourselves in the border disputes between these newly emerged um, uh, Arabic nations, Arab nations. Uh, it was, it was, it, she had used language that was diplomatic language consistent with, with not just US, but also sort of Western policy for decades. Subsequent to that, I spoke to, subsequent to that, Tariq Aziz said publicly that no, she didn't give a green light, or they didn't get a green light, yellow light, or red light. She said what they expected her to say. Now, a number of years later, shortly before he passed away, I had lunch in New York. I was out of government, so I could do it. Um, I used to get Christmas cards from Nizar Hamdoun, who was the undersecretary of the Iraqi Ministry of Foreign Affairs when I was in the White House. He then went to the UN for, to be the ambassador. He used to still send me Christmas cards, which I'd share with Sandy Berger and the NSC. But after I was out of government, I went up to see him. I actually thought that, uh, that we had a good story, that we could do a he said, he said story where we could look at the run-up to the Gulf War from our different perspectives, because we met every day, almost, sometimes twice a day. We were together in the middle of the night dealing with this shit. And, um, and he was very sick at the time, and it was too premature. He was out, Saddam was still alive, he was concerned about his family. Um, but I asked him during that lunch, I said, what about, you know, you were there at the meeting. What did you take away from, from April's meeting? And he said, no, that, didn't, that was no surprise to us at all. What surprised us was a letter we got from George Herbert Walker Bush a couple of days later. Now, I'm very familiar with that letter. 
So I called up my, my guys up at the State Department. I said, this is what uh, old guys, old retired guys who had been there at the time. I said, you guys drafted this letter. <clears throat> what is it about the letter that Saddam took to be um, a reconciliation? Why, was it, why wasn't it harder? Or what did you write about that? And what he said was, we, when we wrote the letter, it was really tough. But by the time it got massaged through the bureaucracy, everybody's changing A to the, and kind to good, and this to that. And by the time it ended up on the president's desk, or ended up in Saddam's desk, it was a bunch of gobbledygook. It didn't, make, it didn't have that hard hitting that it was. Now, I think the other, the, other, uh, the other thing that happened during that time, which has not been widely reported, but a couple of days after the invasion, the Assistant Secretary of State John Kelly testified before the House um, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. And he was asked by uh, the then chairman, uh, whose name escapes me, um, whether or not the United States had a mutual defense pact with Kuwait. And so Kelly answered honestly uh, a question to which the chairman already knew the answer. He said, no, we don't. So, you know, if you're looking for green lights, there's lots of places right. to be looking. But I think, um, I think, I know that April was unfairly maligned throughout all of this. Right. She was one of the most brilliant Arabists in the, in the business. And we, she was broadly recognized. She was a female, first female ambassador to the Arab world, I believe. Uh, she had been deputy chief of mission to Herman Eilson in, uh, in Egypt, or, or political officer to some of the greatest Arabists of his generation. She'd been deputy in Syria uh, to one of, our, one of our most renowned Arabists. Um, so yeah, she got a bad rap. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. How close was the relationship between the ambassador or the, the, the deputy chief of mission to the chief of station? And by that, I'm referring to the CIA contingent within, the, within these both within Africa, because CIA certainly is, knows its way around Africa and has since the 1950s. And then, of course, in Iraq, during the lead-up to that time period, were, was the CIA, was it thing, were things blinking red in the ambassador's office in Baghdad leading up to the invasion of Kuwait? We, in, in Baghdad, I wouldn't say it was, it was agency reporting. Uh, I would say that it was just general embassy reporting, military, DIA reporting, because we're talking about military maneuvers. Um, the, 
We were very concerned about it. Uh, we knew that they were doing maneuvers. We also, we also knew that Saddam, we saw that Saddam was making some really um, uh, highly inflammatory remarks towards uh, Israel in the springtime of 1990. So much so, his, his, his comment that really got our attention was he said, um, should Israel do anything to us, we will set fire to half of it, which everybody interpreted as a, a threat to use chemical weapons. Right. And in the aftermath of what Saddam had done to the, um, to the Kurds up in Suleimania, um, everybody was concerned about what he meant. So we actually had a delegation, congressional delegation, uh, out in the region. So we brought them to Baghdad. Bob Dole, Murkowski from Alaska, McClure from Idaho, Simpson from uh, Wyoming, uh, Messenbaum from uh, Illinois. Is that right? I think so, yeah. And... Um, we all went up to Mosul to meet with Saddam. Um, interesting meeting. Saddam spoke for 45 minutes. They went around the room, and the hard-hitting message you wanted to give him was, don't screw with Israel, dude. Uh, <laughs> was sort of lost when Metzenbaum said to him, he said, uh, Mr. President, um, I can tell you're an honorable man. Now, their next stop was Jerusalem. He got in a little trouble for that when he got to Israel. But the big one was when Simpson, who was about 6667, and if you've lived in the Arab world, their seats are very low. They're, they're better getting up from low seating than certainly I am. So Simpson's sitting in this low seat. Saddam's there. Simpson's here. And Simpson's turn. And he leans forward to Saddam. And I'm the note taker. I'm watching this all unfold. And Simpson looks literally like he's on bended knee sitting in front of Saddam. Because if your chair is that low and you're leaning forward in it and you're 6'6", Something somewhere's got to give, <laughs> and it's the knee. And he said to Saddam, he said, uh, you don't have a policy problem here. I can see that. You've got a press problem. Uh, your problems, I know all about that. i got problems with the press in Washington all the time. So you just got to deal with the press part of it. So I, we walked out of that meeting thinking, oh, this didn't really work out very well. So we followed it closely. And... Uh, when things got bad over the summer between Kuwait and Iraq, we were following the, the negotiations in Taif very, very closely. Uh, and um, we had all ears uh, on, on, the, on the events as they were passing. Uh, but the negotiating process, and really this is something to ask Barbara Bodine. For, this is to ask the Kuwaitis, the embassy in Kuwait. But um, the Kuwaitis sent their senior diplomats. The Iraqis sent their senior thugs. Those, they sent Taha Ramadan, who is best known for wearing pearl-handled pistols, uh, reverse-wise, in his saddle, in his uh, holster, so he could cross. You know, <laughs> Sergio, Sergio Leone, cross-handled uh, draw. Uh, and they sent Itzad Ibrahim, who is the, still, so nobody knows where he is. So the Kuwaitis thought they were dealing with a diplomatic issue when in fact they were just being shaken down by the Iraqis. And apparently uh, the, um, the issue came to a head when the Iraqis were looking for the Kuwaitis to forgive debt and extend more credit. And the Kuwaiti delegation said to the Iraqis, uh, if you want more money, you should just do what the Iraqis have been doing for thousands of years. Put your women back out on the streets. Ooh. Now, I heard that story first from Nizar, 
And then I later had it confirmed to me um, by uh, a colleague from our embassy in Amman, Jordan, who had been called over to the palace at 3 o'clock in the morning because a king had just gotten off the phone with an irate Saddam Hussein and was a little bit worried about where this thing was going. And he was certainly right to be worried. Now, in actual fact, the, and, and, uh, the intelligence, there were, there were five markers that people were looking at in the IC, the intelligence community, to determine whether what Saddam was doing was a bluff or for real. Things like heart, uh, equipment being moved into the theater, things like tanks being, being changing, uh, turrets changing direction, a lot of stuff you look at if you're a military guy to see how they're positioning themselves for the deployment of the Republican Guard was a key component too. Yeah, exactly. And it was about 18 hours before the people started getting, started thinking in Washington that, oh, we really got to worry about this. Um, Now, I I got the call at 2.30 in the morning of August 2nd, and I'm in bed, sound asleep. It's 110 degrees outside, so I'm stark naked. And uh, the damn phone rings at 2.30 in the morning, and I roll out of bed. I'd just been at a dinner with one of Saddam's biggest arms uh, buyers. And he had this house right along the Tigris River. And we drove up to this house, and you had all the date palm trees and everything. And we go into the house, and it is chilled to about 50 degrees <laughs> right on the Tigris River. The whole thing was, uh, was hallucinating. And uh, the guy had his son. He had a baby. He had a, a big grandson with white piano. And his son played classical music for us the entire night as we were talking to this arms dealer. So 3 o'clock, the 2.30, the phone rings. I get up. I stumble to the phone. I pick it up. I kick the dog on up. stumble over the dog <laughs> on the way. Um, pick up the phone, and it's the Marine security guard patching Washington through. And the Marine security guard says, uh, Mr. Charger, I have the White House online. And I thought, holy shit. <laughs> the president's calling me. So I'm standing there stark naked at 3 o'clock in the morning. The phone, the dog's whining over in the corner. I got the phone in my ear. And what do you do? I stood to attention and saluted and waited for my president to come on the line. And then the phone went dead. <laughs> so I called, I called up. Well, I didn't call the president, but I called up the uh, National Security Council to find. That's when we learned that uh, Saddam had invaded Kuwait. And things got very interesting from then on. Well, at, at what point did you become the acting ambassador? Because well, yeah, April had left uh, two days after her meeting with Saddam. She had gone on long scheduled medical leave. She had things she had to do with her mother. All the ambassadors left in the summertime. You know, th- that, was, that was the DCM's job to deal with 110, 150 <laughs> degree heat. All the ambassadors were, were elsewhere. We tried to get her back. We, we, and and we, we, uh, I could have used, I, I used all the help, I, all hands on deck. And. Um, and I actually wrote, I wrote up a scenario. The, the, the Europeans and the Canadians were all bringing their ambassadors back. And, and they decided so it wouldn't be a political issue. Why are you sending your ambassador back to this butcher's capital? Uh, they, they brought them all back together. And so I, I recommended they, they put April in that group, bring her back. They decided not to. Um, and that was their decision, and I'm not sure why. I know that I enjoyed the confidence of the president. And of senior officials in Washington. So from August 2nd, I believe, was the invasion of Kuwait through February 16th, which is the beginning of desert... January 16th. January 16th, the beginning of the bombing campaign. Um, that had to have been an interesting time period to be there. I mean, the, the Iraqis understood that 
that George and H.W. Bush wasn't bluffing. The, the Desert Shield, which was the buildup in Saudi Arabia of no, they hundreds didn't. and hundreds of thousands. They thought of, it was a bluff. Really? The whole mm -hmm. time they thought it was a bluff? They thought it was a bluff up until, um, up until pretty much when it happened. And oh, where, yeah. where were you on January 16th? On uh, January 16th, I think I was in the office of the president. So you got pulled back to the United... What, at what point no, did you I, come No, on back? the 14th, I was in the office okay. of the president. On the 16th, I was uh, watching with tears in my eyes as the bombing of Baghdad was unfolding. You know, we had an embassy of maybe 100 people, including dependents, another 150 Iraqis who worked for us. They were provided our guard services, our home residential guard services. They... they, they the warehousing and all the, all the stuff that you do administratively in, in the concert section. They were all, we were small enough to be a family. And I'll just give you an example. The, the day after the night of the invasion, uh, one of my senior communicators died of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of an edema, um, a brain aneurysm. Uh, so we were faced waking up on the morning of the second with Saddam and Kuwait, me down dealing with the foreign ministry. I got a body in a freezer because the morgue is full. And I got an American community absolutely devastated by what's going on around them and by the loss of somebody in a very tight-knit community. And it's something that affected not just the Americans, but all the Iraqis in our community as well. So the same day that we're dealing with Saddam, with Tariq and Saddam and all this, we had to put together a um, uh, all the, uh, everything necessary to repatriate the body, and then to have a memorial service to commemorate this guy who had served our family for so long. So things are very complicated. <laughs> well, and the Iraqis started essentially using you as hostages. I mean, well, you, you know, for yeah. the, I mean, it wasn't necessarily Iran in 79, but there, there was certainly a, well, a, you could not just go anywhere you wanted to, and the, the idea of talking using as human shields certainly yeah. came well, into what play. They, what they did is they picked up American civilians picked up 150 of them out of Kuwait and out of Iraq and made them hostages, the ones they could find. Most of them came out of Iraq. What we did to counter that is we activated what we call our warden system. And every, every American citizen who was, and you're all, whenever you're overseas, you're advised to go in and check with the consulate. Uh, we activated that warden system. We brought another 75 Americans to the ambassador's residence where they stayed for three months. They were on American soil. They could not be touched by the Iraqis. Iraqis retaliated by sending out a diplomatic note saying, uh, you will bring your citizens in to be registered, i.e., be taken hostage, and failure to do so could result in capital punishment. My response to that was uh, I had a morning press briefing, background briefing with the international press, and my response was to make copies of that diplomatic note and to come into the press briefing wearing a tie that had been tied in the shape of a hangman's noose. And I said to the press as I passed the diplomatic note around, this was done to, to share with them the concern we had at what the Iraqis were threatening. And uh, I, said, um, I said, my response to this uh, naked threat is to tell Saddam, um, if he's asking me to choose between my American citizens and my own life, I'll bring my own fucking rope to the hanging. That got their attention. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, at noon, at noon, French TV was broadcasting that they were going to hang the American charge at sundown. <laughs> my then wife at the time was French. She was in Paris, and she called me up to ask if my life insurance was up to date. <laughs> uh, Tariq Aziz uh, convoked a, a meeting of the entire diplomatic corps in a big hall 
that had a huge table in the middle and had bleachers along the sides for the, the strap hanger. So I got there early, set myself up right across from where Sam, Sadat, or Tarek was going to be. And I brought the accoutrements of power as seen through the Iraqis. Uh, if you were an Iraqi in power, there were certain things that you, that you did to show that. Uh, aviator glad dark glasses was one. Uh, big Cuban cigars was another. Uh, a gun on your hip was a third. And uh, a mustache, because if I didn't have a mustache or a gun, but I brought my aviator glasses and I brought my big cigar. And I'm sitting across from Tarek, and he was clear. He was using this as an opportunity to dress me down in front of my European colleagues. And he started in, and, and I interrupted him. And I said to him, I said, uh, well, if you're, you're saying you didn't mean this, why did you write it? And it degenerated from there. So the entire diplomatic court, you know, 100, 120 ambassadors and all their strap hangers. And Tarek and I are screaming at each other in the middle of this conference table. Tarek finally leans back, goes into his coat pocket, and he pulls out a Monte Cristo number four, three or four. One of the ones kind of long. I reach into mine and pull out an aluminum tube with a Romeo and Julieta Churchill. <laughs> and while we're waiting to cool off, we light our cigars and we stare at each other. <laughs> Two days later, they pulled the diplomatic note. <laughs> How much were you involved in the actual negotiations to get them to leave before the war began? Was that something, so they certainly brought in some of the heavy hitters. You know, the, there was a group from Washington that came in, but how much, you, you don't want to completely take that out of the hands of the people who understand the, the system. Well, then. I guess the best way to, 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 to share with you my involvement, I've got a couple of stories, but, but the first one is um, uh, when H.W. got back from Aspen, he was in Aspen during the invasion, and was, I think he was with Maggie Thatcher there. He came back to Washington, so where she said, don't go, don't go limp on me or something like that. Came back and he chaired the first principles meeting, which is a cabinet level national security meeting. And uh, by that time, we'd already done a number of things out in, um, in Baghdad on the theory that uh, better to take action and apologize and not take action and get somebody killed. So we'd done taken a number of security measures, a number of things to protect our citizens and stuff, uh, getting the Americans into the embassy and everything. And so <clears throat> HW, as I was told by the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, he was going around the room, he was kind of brainstorming, he came up with this idea and he kind of put it out there. <clears throat> and um, his assistant secretary leaned over to him and said, Mr. President, if you read your executive summary here, you'll see that Joe Wilson did that two days ago. So that gave me a fair amount of credibility in the inner sanctum of the, of the uh, national security apparatus. Thereafter, I was told by uh, a guy who was at the National Security Council, who was also on the fringes of all these National Security Council meetings, that in subsequent NSC meetings chaired by the president, whenever anybody came up with an idea of what to do, he would say, that sounds like a good idea. If you run that past Joe Wilson? So I think that's really where, where Dick Cheney and I first rubbed up against each other. <laughs> I think if you're sec deaf, you didn't want to have to refer to Joe Wilson for anything. <laughs> well, that's a hell of a, let's, let's use that as a segue, because I think some of the people out here are dying for us to get to February 2002. <laughs> Um, so we're skipping some years, but I think this is key. You've been out of government for a little while. You've been working back in Africa doing business development stuff. And in February, who sent you to Niger in February of 2002? Well, when I was at the White House, um, 
97, 98 at the NSC, there was a coup d'etat in Niger uh, that resulted in a military government coming to power. Um, and in Niger, when these militaries come to power, they come as a junta, um, but the civilian administration, by and large, in this case, remained the same. And so I knew these guys from pre-coup days. Uh, what happens when there's a coup d'etat, there's an American law that says you suspend all development assistance. You, and there's a European law that does the European Community Regulation does the same thing. If there's no development assistance to Niger, they die. So they sent delegations to Washington to come see me uh, to try and plead for assistance. And I told them very straightforwardly, I said, you know, it pains me. I fell in love with Africa and Niger. Um, it, so it really pains me to tell you this, but there's, you've got to get back to a civilian rule. I'll come out there and tell your president that. Well, they brought the president into town, so I told him that. And then they asked me to come out, after I left government, they asked me to come out and, um, and, and sort of help them talk to each other. And so I did, and, and, and I enjoyed the, um, uh, the confidence of the president and the confidence of, of the civilian administration. And they, we were moving in the right direction, then he got assassinated. So that was a setback. So I had to go back out there and deal with his assassin, who was then the president. So I developed a fair amount of goodwill, um, confidence building. So in February, when this, this, this issue bubbled up that suggested that there was a document that Saddam Hussein, or the Iraqis, were seeking to purchase uranium in Africa, uh, it got to the attention of the vice president. And the details are somewhat complicated. And the vice president asked the CIA briefer, what about this? The CIA did what a good bureaucracy does to respond to political leadership. They held a meeting. And they invited to the meeting everybody who knew anything about Niger, anybody who knew anything about Iraq, anything, anybody who knew anything about uranium. And I fit the bill in all three counts. And so I was the one guy there who actually had on the ground experience, field experience. Everybody else was analysts. And we went around the table and we discussed what you know, the likelihood of this was. And out of that meeting, the memo that was later published, um, which has my wife's name in it, uh, also contained the fact that two people at that meeting said, there's no reason to make this trip. There's no there there. We have an embassy that's been open since independence. We've been following Niger uranium since they opened the mines in 74. We're all over that. We don't need another team to go out there. Besides which, that's not where you go. The operating partner of the Niger uranium business are French. You go to Paris, dude. So the State Department and I said, this really is a, is a fool's errand. But everybody else sitting around, the energy guy, the DIA, the CIA guys, they all wanted to make sure that all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted. And so just to, just to be sure, go out there. So I said, OK, I'm, I can't do it as a CIA mission. I I'm, I'm, may not be well-known in Washington, but I'm pretty well-known in Africa after having taken Bill Clinton there for 11 days. Um, so I'll take it as a government undertaking, but, um, which I did. I went out there. I did everything I was supposed to do. I came back with my results, and lo and behold, they were true. I also suggested when I came back that uh, if you want to look into this further, uh, again, I'll repeat to you, go talk to the French. And guess what? I later found out they did. A French emissary from, from uh, the French foreign minister, actually I think he was at the presidency at the time, came to see me 
oh, six months later, to tell me uh, that, um, that, that they had asked the French to go look at it, the French had done it, and come back with exactly uh, the same um, information I had. And of course, if you're dealing with Kojima in Paris, uh, you can find a way to get into their books and to get into their... But the whole thing was illogical to begin with. It was a 20% increase in the, in, the, uh, in the annual mining production of uranium, which is a big increase. The consortium that ran the mine comprised five countries, of which Niger was only one. They met to set target production all the time. If you're going to increase by 20% over a very short period of time, you've got to get more trucks to, to truck the stuff out. You've got to get more barrels to put it in. You've got to get more miners to go down in the mines. And guess what? If you've got a 20% increase in mining revenue in a country like Niger, that revenue is going to show up. Right. It's going to show up in cars in Niamey. It's going to show up in lifestyles. It's going to show up in houses. It's going to show up in, you know, all over the place. So, um, you know. That's a very inside baseball bureaucratic mission that you went on where you came back and said, look, there's no there there. You would have noticed it all these different places. Why did it, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I want you to say it. Why did it become public? Why did you feel the need to write an op-ed that was published in a very prominent newspaper that said, this is nonsense? Like, what, why, why did it fall on deaf ears? Because, I, well, me, I think what I, I didn't say this was nonsense. I said that, um, that, that it was worth raising as a question. Um, I just shared my story. Uh, and said that given at that time we had four or five hundred Americans dead, uh, it was worth knowing the answer. Were we misled when the president spoke those 16 words to the Congress of the United States? And it was not, it was an act of, I think, civic duty. I think you have a responsibility as a citizen to hold your government to account when your government is speaking to the people, and particularly if you're the president giving the State of the Union on a question of war and peace. Right. How, how much do you, uh, blame's the wrong word, what was your relationship with Colin Powell and George Tenet? Because they, they feigned ignorance somewhat about your report. I mean, it, it's Tenet especially, it's, I never saw it, you know, I don't even know who Joe Wilson is. Uh, well, and, they could all be right. Yeah. They could all be right, they, 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 they might not have seen it because there was no there there. Right. So if you're, if you're by the, almost, not quite by that time, but by not too much long later, they, they, everybody, uh, uh, people like uh, uh, Foley, um, uh, what was his first name? He was head of the counterterrorism, uh, Alan Foley. He was a, a big guy in the counterterrorism business, and uh, he was reported as having said to his staff, the president wants a war, it's our responsibility to give him what he needs to do it. Uh, the French or the British head of uh, intelligence said, coming out of a meeting with, with Tenet and American intelligence officials, that the Americans have fixed the facts around the decision they've made, essentially. So um, uh, my relationship with Colin uh, is, is um, I have a good relationship with Larry Wilkerson because we're on the, on the same board of the Military Religious Freedom Foundation uh, where we fight against uh, evangelicals' efforts to proselytize people not of their uh, dominional faith. Um, so he and I do that. Uh, together. This is in the military. Um, uh, Colin and I have met really only once, and that was when I came out of Baghdad. I think I was much more popular uh, when I came out of Baghdad than I was when I wrote the article in the New York Times. <laughs> just a guess. Just a hunch. <laughs> why, why did they think that 
outing your wife, Valerie Plame, as a CIA officer was somehow then a discredit your knowledge of the area. Because actually, her background was also, to a degree, nuclear intelligence. That's what she did at CIA. Yeah. On face, it looks like this would actually bolster your knowledge of this. You, you're married to a woman who does nuclear intelligence for a living. Yeah, I think, um, I think they, 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 although they knew, I had already talked to Christoph. He'd already written a couple of articles. Pincus had gotten onto the story uh, in the Post. Um, and they were onto it, because they were talking about my wife's name in June. They were, Scooter was meeting with, uh, with uh, Judy Miller, and, and Novak was over talking to Armitage. They were prepared for what they thought was coming, which they probably thought was, you know, this old ambassador was going to do what old ambassadors often do. They come out and they make a stink and then they go away. Um, but when, it, when, the, when, when the article appeared, um, on the Friday before the article appeared, I got called by Meet the Press and I was asked to come on and talk about the Liberian War with Senator John Warner. I was happy to do that. But I said to the producer, Betsy Fisher, who's a, who's a wonderful, wonderful Washington person. Um, she said, uh, I said to her, I said, um, I'm happy to do that. I just, just a heads up, there'll probably be something posted Saturday night, um, an article that I've got in the New York Times. You might want to talk to me about something else when I'm on as well. Um, and then it got out, um, Rich Leiby of The Post was doing a a, um, a puff piece on what it was like to be in charge of the embassy in Baghdad in 1990. A lot of quotes from the hostages and everything else. And so he was working on that, and Pincus was working on the heart issue. And they got together, they panicked because they thought the Times was going was to uh, scoop them. And so they wanted to come over to do an interview. I said, yeah, sure, why not? So uh, Saturday night, I get a call from Meet the Press saying, uh, yeah, we're going to want to talk to you about Iraq. So Sunday morning, Dick Cheney wakes up. He picks up the New York Times, and he sees a 1,600-word op-ed, 1,500-word, across the whole top of the front page of the Outlook section on Sunday, July 6th. Everybody's down at the beach, 4th of July weekend. Everybody's hungover. All they want to do is read the New York Times. And there you got Joe Wilson in your face. <laughs> at the same time, the Washington Post publishes their article. And then at the same time, he turns on, so he turns on, he wakes up to the Times, sees me, opens the Post, sees me, turns on Meet the Press, and there I am. <laughs> in your face, dude. Um, you've got to imagine that, that that suggests something like a concerted effort. Right. That's, that's comes from coordination. Um, so I've always suspected they probably reacted to the idea that they thought, I've heard this too, that they thought that I was just fronting for a CIA pushback on the WMD issue. So we only have a couple minutes left. I, I have like 50 more things I want to talk to you about, but let, let's lay it down. I got to go to the bathroom. I only have a few minutes left. Did, did Scooter Libby fall on a sword for Dick Cheney? I think you have to ask him. If I were to speculate, I would say, is any doubt? Well, yeah. I mean, is, it, do you, do you, so the, 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 you would think, or you would argue, I know certainly you have in the past, the order to out Valerie Plame, your wife, was from the vice president's office. Yeah, do, do, over the president's office. 
Oh, you think it went higher than that? No, I don't just... think it went to the president. But, you know, um, uh, Rove worked for the president. He didn't work for Cheney. Right. And I think he was intimately involved. He's a dirty trickster. He's the guy who knows how to do this shit. Uh, stuff, pardon me. <clears throat> what, what do you think about the pardon of Scooter Libby that Donald Trump just gave? Oh, it's, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, Scooter's, you know, he's spent force. Does it send it, a it, problematic it message, years. though, to... It, it, it's, it's, it's respect to Scooter. It, it's not about Scooter. And it's not about Joe. It's about whether or not an administration uh, lied to get us into a war of unspeakably horrible national and international consequence. And how do we do governance? Now, before 9-11, it was tough to get into a war. When we did the Gulf War, we had to go to Congress. Uh, uh, and, and we had to get we had to get a dozen resolutions at the United Nations. And it was an uphill battle. Now, I, I, I spent some time up on the Hill as a congressional fellow. And it was, and, uh, and until his death, was very personally close to Tom Foley and to Al Gore. And Al Gore was one of the deciding votes. Uh, and Al Gore has told people the last person he talked to before he voted on the Gulf War and the last person he talked to before he gave his speech at the Daughters of the American Revolution Convention Center in Washington against the Iraq War, the last person he spoke to before he made his decision, which I remind you was his decision, was me. So, um, you know, it was tough. What happened in 2001, and this is also very predictable, because not only predictable, but it, it was written up. If you read the, the Project for the New American Century, which is the new conservative, what they would like to think was their strategic doctrine, but was essentially a propaganda piece, a pro-war propaganda piece in the Middle East, um, they argue that we needed a dramatic new direction in the Middle East, one in which we were much more present. Um, Max Boot, who's still around, uh, once wrote about Afghanistan, we should be proud with our minions around the world striding across Afghan Afghanistan like the British troops in their pith helmets and, uh, and thigh-high boots in the 19th century. That's in an article he wrote. Um, well, he's reinvented himself. I know that a lot of them have. From, too. Um, <coughs> but um, um, I lost my thought there. My bad. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but after 2001, so they write in there, if, if you're going to pursue this project for the new American century, this new aggressive uh, American foreign policy, boots on the ground everywhere, to get the American political will to affect that, you're going to need a national tragedy along the lines of Pearl Harbor. And then you have 9-11. Now, if you're a cynic, once the smoke settles, boy, this is an opportunity. If you're a military guy, this is a budget opportunity. If you're a, if you're a neoconservative, this is an opportunity to move the debate off of level ground or uneven ground. When we did the Iraq War or the Gulf War, uh, the debate was we were pushing the rock uphill uh, to get the resolution for, for uh, all the resolutions. They were pushing the rock downhill uh, to get the resolution that they got. And they got that one resolution, didn't go anywhere else. I can tell you when uh, I was up at the UN, I was up on CNN um, when, um, when Tony Blair, and George and W were in the Rose Garden, 
and W committed himself to rededicating the United States to the Arab-Israeli peace process after this Iraq business. And they asked me on CNN, what does that mean? And I said, it means we're not going to go get the second resolution. We're going to war without the resolution, because that's what Tony Blair needed uh, to get out of Washington alive, actually get back to London alive, get back to you know, his own constituency. Well, Ambassador Joe Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Please join me in thanking Joe Wilson. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. That's INTL SpyCast. Talk to you next week.